passage in 1 Timothy 4 again. Father God, we uh, come to you again this morning hungry, needing to be fed. And Lord, we thank you that your word feeds us, that Lord, your word uh, cuts through skin and bone, through flesh into our very souls and speaks to our hearts. Spirit, I pray that you might speak to us again this morning, that through me, Lord, you might speak to us and that you might shape us and mould us more and more into the image of your son. Lord, we pray that you might help us now as we continue in worshipping you by, by listening to your voice. Uh, Lord, give us ears to hear and give us hearts ready to respond to you. And Spirit, I ask that you might just uh, speak through me now with these words. Amen. We've been thinking, especially these last sort of couple of months, about well-being. What does it mean to live well in life? And of course, actually, the most important thing to that of all is actually to make it to the end, isn't it? It's to actually, when all's said and done, to have made it to the end point. Because not all who set out make it to the end. It's one of Paul's points here, not only his point, but the purpose for writing it, is this reality that not all who set out make it to the end. And it's something of a desperate plea on his part to encourage us to be able to make it to the end. Andy McNabb writes about the SAS selection process the year in which he selected, there were 220 candidates who started out the selection process. He says this began by physical fitness uh, and stamina being tested. Uh, this would be done by every day for a month, being dropped at a random point in the Brecon Beacons and having to hike to set coordinates across the mountains within a time limit with all of their gear and everything else. And he writes about it, he says, this is the first true test of your mental and physical resilience the last day, they have you do a specialized endurance hike, 64 kilometers over the mountains. Depending on the weather conditions and what season it is, you have to get it done in some time between 20 to 24 hours. That experience is meant to get rid of all those guys who think they are James Bond. The guys doing a bit of fantasy role play with the selection and don't have the true desire to succeed. The guys who haven't prepared enough or don't physically have what the mission is going to require. By the end of the month, our group had gone from 220 down to 24 people. It's then training with weapons and equipment. And then he writes, the next test after the weapons work is living in the jungle for a month. Our group was sent to Borneo, and there you learn how the regiment works in small four-man groups. I'd never been to the jungle before then. You're just trying to survive and find ways to make yourself as comfortable as possible and using the undergrowth to keep cover during your exercises between foraging and making traps. By the time we left the jungle, there were eight of us left in our selection. They brought us back to the headquarters in Hereford for a week of listening to former prisoners of war. The last exercise is a real-world scenario where they put you on the run for two weeks. You're being chased by two British infantry companies with hunting dogs. The route is based on an escape and evasion that happened during the Second World War across Europe. They give you the same coat and unlaced boots that the soldiers used back during those times. The companies that are chasing you have a big incentive, two weeks of extra leave. You're trying to go from coordinate to coordinate to liaise with your contacts 
using only a homemade compass. In the end, you always get captured because they want to put you through a mock interrogation. It's the people who are conducting those interrogations who make the final call if you pass that test. For the eight of us that made it through, we got badged. Out of 220 who set out, eight made it to the end. Not everybody who sets out on the journey of faith makes it to the end. It's a journey full of trials, challenges, sufferings, and temptations. And so now Paul tells us how we might make it to the end. And Paul's call really is to take responsibility for yourself. To take responsibility to work out, to train yourself to make it to the end. I just want to show you just four things in this chapter. Firstly, is the departure lounge. Imagine yourself in this place. It's around about 7.35 on a Tuesday morning. You're waiting to board a plane due to leave at around 7.55. You're in the departure lounge. The particular departure lounge looks something like this, or at least it does now. It's been done up a little bit since then. You're at Logan International Airport in Boston. You're scheduled to fly to Los Angeles. Your flight, however, is American Airlines Flight 11. It's the one that will crash into the North Tower of the World Trade Center. You can't stop that event. But imagine if you could be back there, what would you say to those people in the departure lounge to stop them boarding that flight? Well, here Paul has a departure lounge in mind. And here's what he would say to desperately encourage those who are on the brink, perhaps, of leaving the faith, not to. He says, now the Spirit expressly says, in later times, some will depart from the faith. And he uses an interesting phrase here. Now the Spirit expressly says. It means explicitly, or actually in so many words. The Holy Spirit is telling me, in these sort of exact words, in later times, some will depart from the faith. And here's a bit of a strange thing, isn't it? Because we believe that all scripture is God-breathed, is God-inspired. So Peter tells us, 2 Peter 1. But this is different. Peter writes about those who write scripture, and he has in his mind not only the Old Testament sort of writers, but also the likes of uh, Paul and the other gospel writers in his mind. He says they're carried along by the Holy Spirit as they wrote. They wrote not just for themselves, but for those to come after them, and they write carried along by the Holy Spirit. And yet there's something different here, because Paul is saying the Spirit has expressly said to me, he's explicitly said to me, he said in these exact sort of words, because here's the thing, in terms of talking about the Bible being the inspired word of God, that every word has ultimately come from him, it's not as though the writers sit there and it's like a guided pen. They sit there with the eyes closed and just the pen is carried along for them, mindlessly. No, the books are written by human authors, human authors engaging their cognitive and their critical faculties. They each of them have a specific cause, a specific purpose, and meaning behind what they're saying. The meaning categorically is not derived from what you feel. That is a postmodern concept of truth that is incorrect. 
the meaning is not derived from what you feel it says. Every opinion about it is not equally valid. Because specific people in a specific place and time with a specific meaning in mind sat and penned those documents. You don't make the meaning to it. In fact, what we have to do then is to engage our literary, our historical, our cultural criticisms to understand the meaning. What did the author intend to say? And they each have their own personality and style and vocabulary. And yet, at the same time, every single word comes from God by the illumination and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that as they sat there and engaged their minds and their hearts, God was leading them and inspiring them. But here is something different for Paul. It's a bit more like the prophets, where God speaks directly, verbatim, tell them this. He's spoken directly to him, which happens still today. Not all the time, but sometimes it does. When it does, it's to be tested by the scriptures. But here is what Paul is saying, that the Spirit has expressly said to him, some will depart. And the word actually is apostatize. Some will apostatize from the faith. If you think to try to get the context of the the meaning of that word, it's, it's a word that's used in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament called the Septuagint to describe Israel's abandonment of God. Same word. But to understand it, perhaps the easiest way to put it in context is that if to repent, and as Jesus first comes to earth and first begins his ministry, it talks of him uh, preaching of the kingdom of God and saying, repent and believe. Repent means to turn around, to turn away from and to turn towards God, to turn away from sin and to move towards God. Well, if that's what repentance is, apostasy is the opposite, because that's the meaning of the word. It's to turn from being with Christ around in the opposite direction. And in fact, it has an even more of an offense to it, because it's not just to turn around and to turn away, it's to turn away and to take up a position against him. Some will apostatize from the faith. So then, if we want to stop this, then we need to ask how it happens, don't we? That's the first port of call, isn't it? And Paul gives us two answers initially here. That this happens, firstly, verse 1, by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. Did you see those two themes that are there, the devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. There's a new allegiance and a new understanding of things. Any worldview, any philosophy, any statement on the origins, the purpose, the nature of life that is not exalting Christ is necessarily exalting something else. And demons propagate those stories. Now, here's the irony. 
whatever those departures thought might have been happening, whatever they thought was the process of them departing from the faith, I bet no one thinks that this is why they're leaving the people of God. I bet nobody thinks that's the process. I've never had that kind of exit interview where someone has perceived that as to be why they're leaving. And yet, here is what Paul leaves us with. How does it happen? Well, firstly, devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons. But secondly, how does this happen? Look at verse 2. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Demons have an agent. Here it's false teachers, isn't it? You think about the context of this letter as well, where Timothy is ministering in Ephesus. Uh, Paul has uh, numerous times encouraged them and warned them in tears uh, that false teachers will be coming into their midst. And all of the great growth that they've seen which has been so transformative, not only to that church, but to the city. The gospel has been preached in Ephesus, and it has changed the very economics of the city. That now people are seriously asking, a city that is uh, known for its temple to Artemis of the Ephesians, one of the seven wonders of the world at the time, the whole economy is, is gathered around the, the sort of trade and commerce that goes with people coming there. And that has been completely changed to the point that people in the city are saying, we can't turn a profit on this anymore. And yet, a church that would have such significance in one sense, Paul is numerous times warning and saying, false teachers are going to rise up within you. Beware. Don't listen to them the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Demons always look for a host, for a body to work through. Good Jesus' encounter with the demons in Luke chapter 8. What do they ask him as he uh, exercises them? Uh, the person they ask him, can we not then at least go into the pigs? Here's the spiritual reality of what's happening. Think again then of that departure lounge. How do we help those people? Well, we need to know, secondly, don't we, what do false teachers look like? And Paul gives us another two answers here that we've begun to look at. Firstly, that they're speakers of lies. The word there in the original Greek is pseudologos. You might pick up the word logos from the word that's used of Jesus at the beginning of John's gospel, that he is the word of God. He's the logos of God. He's the wisdom and word of God. These are speakers of life, pseudo-logos, pseudo-wisdom. It seems really wise. It, it seems really compelling, but it turns out to be lies after all. They're speakers of lies, but secondly, they have their consciences seared. And the word there, again, is, is cauterized. And if you're medical, you might sort of pick that up and realize what that means. That that's uh, the nerve endings there have been seared and killed so that you will not feel it. Their consciences have been killed off. They've killed off their consciences to be able to do this. In fact, actually, this is something that Nietzsche himself had sort of 
lamented and put across. He hates Christianity. He says, you know, Christianity only exists because guilt exists. If you could eliminate guilt from society and from the experience of life, no one would feel any need for a Christ who dies for your guilt. It stands to reason. So a large part of his work is to try to encourage people not to live with guilt because he hopes that at the other end of that, he can kill off Christianity too. These are people who have killed off their consciences. That's how they can do this. But what do they teach? Look at verse 3 here. They forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods God created to be received with thanksgiving. And the message here is, and that might seem like a bit of a strange combination of things to put together, abstaining from certain foods, avoiding marriage. Weird sort of place to go of all the places that you could go. Weird thing that would be seen sort of so seriously by Paul, perhaps, of all the things that you could teach. Why does it so anger Paul then? Why does he see it as so serious? Here's the message that links the two of those things, avoiding certain foods and avoiding marriage. What was the point of that? The message here that they're teaching is that ascetic righteousness is better than God's grace. That managing to live up to a certain standard and certain sort of pattern of rules is more important and more significant and more formative to your salvation and your growth as a Christian than Christ's grace given to you. You want to be holy? Don't get married. You want to be holy? Don't eat meat. Not all who start out make it back. Paul's explained some of why that is. Now he gives us some of the encouragement to keep going. I wonder if you've uh, ever sort of been to an Airbnb or just a sort of holiday home sort of thing that you, you come in and into someone's house. And it's, it's like a bit of a weird thing. Um, experience this over the summer where sometimes you're not sure how much of the stuff that's there you're to use. Do you know, like, what's the sort of acceptable level of things? Is, is everything that's here sort of for me or is it just sort of like because it looks nice as a display? And so we were somewhere over the summer, and there's this lovely sort of display of different wines uh, and different rums and things. I'm thinking, ah, oh, they look really good. But, you know, is, is it there for me? Or, or is it just, you know, because it looks nice? Because it does. And I got undenied the sort of the whole time. I thought, oh, well, I just feel so sort of mortified if, it was, if I was not really supposed to drink it. It's just sort of to look at. And I spent the whole time actually to say, oh, okay, I'm, I'm just not going to because I can't bring myself to do it. I didn't know, was it all really there for me to enjoy or not? The second point here is that actually all is to be enjoyed. God had created these things to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. The lie of all lies has really always been that God does not prioritize your joy. That's not important to him. He is not concerned with your joy in life. That secondly, God withholds joy from you, in fact. 
And that thirdly, there might be a better joy beyond him. That's the problem with Adam and Eve taking the fruit. Right? It's the story behind it. It's that they're believing in that moment, the lie of the serpent, that God isn't interested in your joy. He's withholding it. If only you would eat of this fruit, you would have better joy than what you have with him. He's stingy. The complete reverse is true. God is deeply concerned with your joy. God offers joy to you freely. And God offers more joy than there could ever be found outside of him. He's created these things to be received with thanksgiving. Verse 4, look at this. Everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. There's an important caveat there, isn't there? Everything created by God... That's a significant caveat. Not everything. There are quite eminently things that are created that are not in any way, shape, or form good. There are some things that are partly good, but partly bad. Everything created by God is good in and of its nature. And nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. The problem is not that some things are bad, avoid the bad things, and you'll be good. Righteousness is nowhere near that simple. It's not about simply avoiding the bad things outside of you. The particular problem for the people here that Paul's writing to, the particular sort of sets of false teachers that Paul is encouraging Timothy to stand up to are those who are ascetics and those who are Gnostics. Those who are ascetics who say that spirituality, faith, is really most deeply expressed and most significantly seen by the imposition of rigorous rules. Don't eat, don't touch, don't go, don't associate. Oh, that's righteousness. And then on the other hand, you have the Gnostics, who the whole idea of it really is to try to achieve, to try to receive some sort of secret revealed wisdom to you that's revealed to you because you're special but not to everybody else. And the way that you get to be sort of eligible for this is because you're also aesthetically very rigorous too. You're a cut above everybody else, so you can get to see the secret stuff. They say that you're made righteous ultimately through your level of behavior or through your level of spiritual knowledge revealed because of your superior performance. It's all a false gospel. The false gospel says that actually the problem in the world is that matter, material, things are bad. The spiritual realm is good. So my greatest hope in life is to push eject on the world and get out of it. Finally be rid of my terrible body and just be back to a spiritual existence free from the limits and sin of the world the gospel does not say that the gospel says on the other hand both matter both material and spirit are good they're made by God the problem is not what God has made it's being bad the problem is that we are problem is that we are bad so that 
salvation, sanctification, growing to be more and more as God has made us, is God changing me to be all he had already made me to be. My life has been about a struggle and a resistance against the purpose and the identity that God has made me with. My refusal to be who he's made me to be. Salvation is to finally, by God's redeeming work within us, make us yield to being who he's made us to be from the very beginning. The path to righteousness, to justification, to being made right before God, is through the blood of Christ in place of mine. It's not through a separatism or a pietism. And by the way, he's not impressed. What a pathetic God if he really is impressed by that. Oh, I'm so impressed by the way you managed to avoid those people. Oh, I'm so impressed by the way you managed to not do that. As if, as if that will get you leverage with him. Really? Really? Would that be a thing that would really sway him? God of the universe. No. It's ridiculous, isn't it? The chief purpose of humanity is to glorify God and to enjoy him. And he gives you all the reasons and all the opportunities to do it. Everything has been created by him to be received with thanksgiving. He's given you time after time after time the opportunity to glorify him in all of life. So that the problem is not food and marriage, and yet it is. The problem is food and marriage, meat and sex. Natural hungers we face, but often struggle to control, aren't they? And now, these people are seeing them as bad in and of themselves. These are just simply bad urges. So that my only solution really is to abstain from them. I can't abstain entirely from food, but at least I can avoid meat instead. And we hear of this from some of the early church fathers, of this going on in several different groups. Josephus talks of this happening in the, amongst the Essenes at Qumran and Irenaeus of the Encratites. These things are not bad in and of themselves. Instead of abstinence, which, by the way, does not change your urges, does it? Simply avoiding things does not change your desire for those things. You might hold it off a little bit. You might defer it a little. You might delay it. But it's not changing you. Instead of abstinence. Here instead, the call is to learn to enjoy them rightly. And Paul tells us how we may do that. Verse 5, it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. All things are created to be received with thanksgiving. All things are created by God good, and not to be rejected offhand. They're made holy by the word of God and prayer. All is to be enjoyed. Thirdly, we're encouraged here to train like a champ. Muhammad Ali reflects back on some of his career. He said, I hated every minute of training, but I said, don't quit, suffer now, and live the rest of your life as a champion. And here is the encouragement from Paul to train 
like a champion. Verse 7, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Have nothing to do with this. It, It means like, make your excuses from. You know that party, that event, that gathering you don't really want to go to and you make the excuses to get out or to not have to go in the first place. To not have to go in the first place is like the ideal, the sort of second best is if you can just sort of get away with just showing your face and getting out of there quickly. Make your excuses from irreverent, silly myths. In fact, actually the phrase that's used there in the English is like old wives' tales. Make your excuses from them. Like what? What would be irreverent, silly myths? Well, you know, look on social media. You know, give it sort of half an hour to see new stuff get posted. I guarantee you, you'll find a whole bunch on there, won't you? Purge yourself of that sort of diet of fake news, and actually worse than fake news, irrelevant news. The sheer volume of things that are put across your eyes in the course of a week that are utterly, utterly irrelevant to you. They have absolutely no point of connection with your actual daily life. And it's striking to see how many people go throughout the course of their life desperately anxious and angsty about things that have nothing to do with them. They have no effect upon them. They don't see it. The obituaries to people we don't know and have had nothing to do with our lives, but because they're a celebrity, we must all somehow have some fake sense of grieving about it. It's all false. Why bother? Why pretend? We all know that we're not. We didn't know them. Why would we be? It's utterly insane to be that bothered about someone that you've never had any dealings with. Nothing to do with you. The sheer amount of irrelevant news that comes across your radar, just avoid. But here, like no one leaves for nothing, you leave for something else. You see that earlier on there in those first three verses. Nobody leaves for nothing. They leave because they're going to something else, to somewhere else. It's not just about avoiding myths. It's about what you feed on. Rather, train yourself for godliness. The word there in the Greek is gymnase. It's physical exertion from which we get gymnasium. Train yourself for godliness. Godliness requires hard work. You know, much like you don't stumble into having a six-pack, but if you have one too many six-packs, whether beer or watsits, you'll stumble into having a belly. So discipline yourself. Train yourself. Why? Verse 8, look at this. Bodily training is of some value. Godliness is of value in every way. In fact, actually, again, I remind you sort of every so often, I don't want it to come off as one of those sort of pretentious things of every now just doing that thing of, oh, in the Greek. But it's important because you're handling a book here that's written in one language and then translated to another, and you don't always get all of the nuances across the two languages. It's just if, you know, perhaps your sort of uh, mother sort of tongue is not English growing up, you'll think probably in that mother tongue, and there'll be elements of some of the words and ways you would understand and describe things that don't always carry across as well. Well, It's a similar thing here, because actually what, what it reads as is bodily training is of little value. 
godliness is a value in everything. And you see there that the point is this is a lesser to greater argument. Bodily training is of a small value. It is valuable. But it's really very small value. Godliness is a value in absolutely everything. See, we accept that exercise is important for well-being, don't we? Well, then how much more is your spiritual training? It holds promise for the present life and for the life to come, we're told. It's not just for the future, but it's for your life now as well. Saying is trustworthy and deserving of acceptance, Paul tells us. It deserves trust as opposed to the sort of silly myths that they've been prone to listening to. Now we hear something of Paul's personal struggle and his passion for this in his own ministry here. To this end, verse 10 here, we toil and strive. To this end we toil. To this end we spend ourselves on, is the word that I work to the point of exhaustion for and strive for, struggle for. And the word is used of athletics contests as agonizomai, that I agonize over. We toil and we strive for this in you, Paul says. I don't know if you uh, were a fan at all or watched any of us, sort of hope you weren't, because sort of related to the earlier point about irrelevant sort of news, irrelevant content. Uh, I don't know whether you ever sort of came across Love Island, sort of on your radar. I'm not a fan at all, but I came across an article about Love Island, and here's the phenomena with things that get very big uh, uh, sort of within our cultures. They begin to shape it, and uh, Collins, people who do dictionaries, were talking about ten words that are sort of gradually making their way into everyday sort of lexicon of people. And um, I came across one of these words uh, here. It's the word melt. It describes somebody being overly dramatic, soppy, soft, weak, a bit pathetic. You know, Paul's argument here is that Christianity isn't easy. It's not for the lazy. It's not for the faint-hearted. It's a hard path. It's a narrow way. You find your life by losing it, by giving up out of all that you are and all that you have to serve God and others. So that Christianity is not a path for melts. But then the question is, how do I find the strength to keep going? Because for many of us, we'll know that sort of sense of weakness, of needing his help, needing his strengthening. So where do we find it? Well, Paul tells us here. Here's his motivation. Here's our motivation here. To this end, we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the savior of all, especially of those who believe. Savior of all different peoples, from all kinds of places, especially those who believe. That hope being set on the living God helps him to persevere to the end. The call is to train ourselves, to discipline ourselves for godliness. And then lastly, we have this picture of the faithful teacher. And Timothy is a strange book because on the one hand, it sounds as though it's 
written obviously very directly to Timothy. Timothy's sort of, say, younger protege. Actually, he's probably not that much younger than Paul, but Paul, with the sort of influence and significance and everything that he has, it seems that he's that much more mature. But Timothy, young man in his early 30s, who Paul is training up and, and letting go to take over some of his ministries across Europe. It's written directly to him, and yet, on the other hand, it's read out amongst the whole congregation. And there's elements of it speaking directly to the whole congregation. It ends with this sort of encouragement to Timothy as their pastor, and yet it's there for all of them. Because what we find is, and we'll see this as we come sort of to the end of this section, that we're each connected together. What happens with Timothy affects the community. If there's this connection between apostasy, abandoning the people of God, and false teachers, well then we need to know, what does a good teacher look like? And so that's where Paul leaves us. He tells Timothy here, command and teach these things. What he's just said. A good teacher teaches this and not those sort of silly myths. Let no one despise you for your youth, he says, but set the believers an example in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. On the one hand, there's this call actually to not allow, and, and the weather is really specific of saying not even one, to despise you for your youth, to look down on you, to try to use that of, well, why would I listen to them for their age? One of the ways actually that he can do that is on the other hand and at the same time, set the believers an example. Set an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity, in, in the whole of your life. And notice that in contrast to verse 2 and these hypocrites, the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. On the other hand, the call to Timothy here is set a good example in the whole of your life. See, the character of those who lead us matters. It matters. It matters that they're not perfect, but that they are godly. The goal here is not to be perfect. You can't. And also, you don't really want that or need that. For leaders seemingly too perfect, you know that they're fake. There's something not really real about them. And you won't want to be honest to someone who seems so together. And you need to see how a pastor responds to failing falling short how do they repent you don't need a perfect pastor and by the way that doesn't save people does it the gospel does but you do need a pastor in whom you can see the gospel working and who models a dependence upon jesus not their own ability to be able to get everything right but a dependence upon jesus in all things it matters the character of our leaders doesn't it Richard Baxter, the English reformer, writes this to a generation really of pastors who actually had took the salary and barely did any of the job and trying to sort of encourage more actual faithfulness within it. writes, take heed lest you unsay with your lives what you say with your tongues and be the greatest hindrance of the success of your own labours. Results will never really justify an unredeemed character being in the office. 
That's the reality of what Paul's getting at here. You know, if that were the case, I don't know if it's ever sort of occurred to you to think, but if it were the case that results justify the character of the person there, Satan would make a great pastor. His results are excellent, after all. Results will never really justify an unredeemed character in the office. But then what's the work of the pastor? Look at this in verse 13 here. Devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Reading, exhortation, teaching of the scripture. The faithful teacher opens and teaches and repeats from the book. And notice as well, you know, all the things that we are so prone to make ministry and church life about today that are not mentioned, that are of, in Paul's mind, no significance. Instead, it is to keep turning and returning to the book. Devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. The primary task is and always has been and always will be until Christ's return, word ministry. The problem in verses 1 to 3 there was that there were those pointing anywhere other than Christ. That was really the problem. The remedy, on the other hand, is pointing to Christ. got a picture here which will hopefully come up behind you this is a painting done by uh, an artist called Lucas Cranach who's called by some the sort of the artist of the reformation and what it shows is the reformer Martin Luther preaching on a Sunday and you'll see him there in the pulpit and in the middle is the cross and then is his listeners hearing him and you can see Luther if your eyes are kind of good enough if not you can pull it up on your screens later on and see it sort of zoomed in. You can see Luther on the one hand, hand in the book, hand in the word of God, pointing to the fact that everything that he's saying, everything that he's teaching is coming from there. And then you see him secondly, pointing to the image of Christ on the cross. And you see his congregation not looking at Luther, but looking at Christ. It's a painting with a very deep and profound message of saying that actually true gospel, faithful preaching is always just opening up the book to bring the living Christ before people. And that as Luther opens the word of God, Christ upon the cross and his saving work for us is brought to life once again through the book. And that the people are looking not to the star preacher, but to Jesus himself. If you want to grow as you are training yourself for godliness, the workout plan is very simple. Look to Christ. What does a faithful teacher looks like? Again, it's very simple. It's one who points you to Christ. I'll skip slightly over verses 14 and 15 here just for the sake of time to look at this last verse 16 here. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. 
For by so doing, you will save yourself and your hearers. There's the importance and significance of it. We've begun with this sort of picture of the departure lounge. And here are those who are right on the very brink, perhaps, of walking away, and some who already have. And Paul's plea not to listen to those false teachers, and instead to look to Christ. And here is the significance of all of this to Timothy and to the believers there. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching both on his own personal life, not being perfect, but showing a sense of the gospel working upon him and progressing him in his maturity, and on the teaching. Why? For by so doing, you will save yourself and your hearers. Now we know why Paul says this for everybody to hear. Because we're all invested in this very deeply. We're invested in one another. Our lives actually depend upon this. That the teaching and that his life be watched carefully. That both he and his hearers may be saved. So the call here is, if you're wanting to make it to the end. Wanting to live well. Well, pick your teacher well. You're not looking for a star. Neither are you looking for a doormat. But you're looking for someone who's faithful and honest and yet imperfect. Pointing you to Christ. Maybe you're in the departure lounge. Maybe you're even toying with the idea perhaps of leaving. Who knows? Perhaps that's the place you're at. Perhaps you're wondering what the significance or importance really is of being part of the people of God. Does it really make that much of a difference? Then hear Paul's desperate plea not to board the plane. You will find no better life outside of Christ but you will have to train yourself and prioritize the place and the word in your life. And you will have to pick carefully who it is you listen to. Who will tell you what you really need to hear, not what you want to hear. The one who will point you to Jesus. close in prayer and then we will uh, sing two more songs together Father God you've called us to a life and a journey that is not easy very far from it it's a challenging journey with highs and lows ups and downs struggles sufferings temptations it's a treacherous path we walk. It's a narrow gate that we approach. Rather than turning in on ourselves in desperation, 
feeling as though there's no hope for us to make it to the end of the path. Father, we thank you that the clear message this morning from Paul is that you lead us home. That it is when we look to you, we find our strength. We find our life. We're able to pick up our drooping hands and our weak knees. We're able to put our back straight and to take the next step. Holy Spirit, I pray for those who might be in a place of feeling weary, feeling weak, feeling as though they've stumbled. Feeling as though they need help to get back up. Holy Spirit, grant them the strength and encouragement to do so. For those who might even be wondering what really the significance of walking with the people of God is, that you might encourage them. You might bring them back from the brink. And Lord, for each and every one of us, I pray that you would call us once again to that picture of you, Christ Jesus, slain, crucified on our behalf, dying that we might live, giving us grace to find a future and a hope with you. Turn our eyes and our hearts and our attentions, Lord, once again upon you, upon a promise that holds not just for this life, but into the future also. Help us, Lord, to encourage one another in this path, in this journey, in this training, to encourage one another to continue to look to the risen Lord Jesus in whom we find deepest joy in all of life, in this life and in the life to come. So Spirit, I just pray you might do that work within us that my uh, insufficient and imperfect words will not do on their own. Spirit, I ask that you might uh, work deep within our souls to lead us once again back to you, trusting in you, throwing our whole lives and dependence upon you and knowing that you will turn all things to good for those who love you. We thank you for your goodness, your kindness and your love and your faithfulness to us, that you do not abandon us. You always walk alongside us and with us. You will not forsake us. We thank you. And I pray that each person, whatever kind of place they're in just now, will know that deeply in their hearts, I pray. Amen. I invite you to stand and then we will um, sing to